Today we begin a 12-part series on the Apostles' Creed. Everybody knows that Baptists don't recite the creed. And for a long time, folks have said that Baptists are non-creedal, that you don't put anything between a Baptist and his Bible. All right? We believe the Bible is the inspired, infallible Word of God, and no human instrument can claim that. And so, Catholics, Episcopalians, Methodists, Presbyterians, Lutheran, Orthodox, Congregational, recite the creed, and many of you did Sunday by Sunday. Some of you, every day, if you were in a religious school that had the creed, so you learned it. But in these 12 messages, we are saying that even though we are First Baptist New Orleans, we agree with the creed. We claim that too. They express, the creed expresses what we believe. And it is an ancient creed. First mentioned in a letter from a synod in Milan in 390 A.D. But before that, in 215, there is a form of the creed that has been found. It is the earliest form of the creed, 215. So that means this is the 1800th anniversary of the creed, right? 1800 years later, followers of Jesus in his church are looking at this creed. Now, we do have confessions of faith, and we have the Baptist faith and message which has been revised through the years. It is a consensus statement of what a group of Baptists at a particular place and time agreed on was true. Its most recent revision was in the year 2000. Pastor Fred Luter was on that committee along with Dr. Chuck Kelly sitting here with us. A 14-member or 16-member committee that did that revision in 2000. And we have copies of the Baptist Faith and Message at our welcome desk if you would like to have one. But the creed of creeds is shorter, though it is not as short as, say, the ABCs of salvation. A, all of sin. B, you must believe that Jesus died for us. C, you must confess Jesus as Lord. We go through the ABCs of salvation. Sometimes we use the four spiritual laws or the Roman road, all of sin, the wages of sin is death. God demonstrated his love for us and that while we we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. If you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, you will be saved. So we have these more succinct plans of salvation that we use. But do you know, when the creed first came out, it was an effort to explain what these very strange Christians believed in a pagan world. Their religions would seem just as strange to you as our faith seemed to them back in 200 A.D. at Corinth and Ephesus and all of those Greek states and throughout the Roman Empire. And in order that people might understand what Christians believe and perhaps embrace it, the creed was written. And so we're going through the foundation. Some of these things are even behind the ABCs and the four spiritual laws like the tenet on who we believe God is. 
an evangelistic tool, in other words, 1,800 years ago for a culture that didn't know anything about the church or the covenants God had with men or the Bible or even about Jesus. Lots of us know now that we live in something of a post-Christian culture, that there may have been a time when these truths were easily identified in the broad population, but that's probably not true anymore. There are probably people in your school or at your workplace who don't understand any of these things. And to them, it's like a foreign language. And so maybe in this new time, in this post-Christian era in our culture, it is good for us to revisit the creed and find there the fundamental truths upon which we build our faith. Yes, the creed says, I believe in God. I want us to read it together, okay? The Apostles' Creed, this is the traditional English version. You may know another version. There are many versions of the creed. So we're going to read this one together. A little bit of strange language. It's okay. The traditional English version. Let's read it. I believe in God the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. We will revisit that in weeks to come. Right now I want to read for you what I think is probably the most important statement about the nature of faith in the Bible and it is in Hebrews 11, verses 1 through 6. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks even though he is dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. I'm glad the creed begins with a first-person singular 
I. As a Baptist, I have preached all these years, every individual must give his own answer to God. Your parents can't give your answer. Your clergyman can't give your answer. Your country can't give your answer. Every person must give his own answer to God. It is our responsibility and opportunity. Because we are made in the image of God, you have a competence to say yes or no to the God who calls you. And you must give your answer. I believe. Of course we could say we believe. And oftentimes we do. We confess in solidarity that we all believe in God, that we believe in Jesus Christ. And we just sang that truth. If while we are saying all together, we believe or I believe, there is no belief in your heart then the confession is not true for you. Even those who recite the creed Sunday by Sunday, year by year, have some point at which their faith calls them to make their own confession. There's a confirmation. There's some point at which they get a hold of you by the shoulders and they say, now, do you believe? Is this your confession? You must own it. It must be yours. And many of us remember the moment, a life-transforming moment, when we ourselves said, yes, I believe. The word believe is a little bit uncertain in English. I can believe in marriage, but not be married. I can believe in democracy, but never vote. I can believe in capitalism and not be an entrepreneur. I can say I believe in a lot of things. The word believe in English does not really call me to commitment. But in Greek, the word believe is pisteuo, and the word faith is pistis. So it's the same word group. It's different in English, but... In Greek, it's that way. So if I were to say to you, are you faithing God, it might communicate the difference between saying, I have this intellectual proposition that there's some great force in the universe. Yes, I believe that. And actually confessing, I believe in God. I am faithing God. The statement is more than an intellectual assent to a proposition. For believing in its context is trusting and entrusting. It is trusting in the God who has called me into being. And it is entrusting myself to the God I have come to know. So when I say I believe in God, I am really saying in the confession, I am trusting God and I am entrusting myself to God. In other words, there is a call in I believe in God to a surrender of heart and life. For if we truly believe in God, capital G. See, this is not, as, this is not a little God. This is not a lowercase g. 
If when we say, I believe in God, we have manufactured some God that is friendly to all our sins and built in our image. If he's a little God that we've created, then that wouldn't be the God that is capital G. For this is the God who reigns over all, the supreme being in this universe. Capital G is a monotheistic approach to God. He is God among all these other gods, these Greek gods and Roman gods. I believe in the capital G, God. The God who made heaven and earth. So we are confessing belief in this great, awesome being. And doing so requires some sort of surrender on our part. For to believe in God is to say, I'm not God. I'm not in charge. Someone else is. So there's an implicit surrender in the statement, I believe in God. Now, another thing I love about the statement in the creed is the first explanation for the word God, for that big concept of God that may seem mysterious and almost inaccessible, He is God the Father. God the Father. I believe in God the Father. And yes, there is a universal fatherhood of God. Malachi says, do we not all have one Father? Has not one God created us all? When Paul went to speak in Athens in that Greek context, that pagan context, He said, haven't one of your poets said that we are all the offspring of God? There is a sense in which then everybody on the planet could call God Father because He is the one who made us all. So there is a universal fatherhood of God in a way, but that's really not what the creed is pointing to. For this creed is anchored in the teaching of Jesus who when he was 12 and found at the temple, do you remember? We talked about this in the Christmas season. His parents, frustrated with him, said, didn't you know we're looking for us? And he said, why? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? I had to be about my father's business. And even at 12, he had a sense of the fatherhood of God. This is the one who heard as he walked out of the Jordan River, This is my beloved son. This is my beloved son. This is my son whom I love. This declaration from the Father in heaven was ringing in the ears of Jesus when he left the Jordan River to encounter the forces of darkness in his own day and to preach the good news of the kingdom. At the initiation of his ministry, he had ringing in his ears, This is my son whom I love. And he went boldly into his world because he knew he was the Father's beloved Son. If you could get even a little bit of that today, if you could capture the idea, if you could hear the Father speak his love to you, it would change the way you think of yourself. It would change the way you think of your presence in the world, 
how you behave in the world, if you could really confess, I believe in God, the Father. Jesus taught you to pray this so that whenever you opened your mouth in prayer, these thoughts would come to you, our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. It was Jesus who brought the fatherhood of God to the forefront of thinking about him. And it is a very personal way to think about God. I believe in God, and the first explanation is the Father. The Father. Some of you have been trying to approach God in other ways, on other bases, with other qualities. But I would suggest to you that you ought to follow Jesus in this. And first come to God as Father. It's a personal term, after all. It's a wonderful declaration of relationship. It draws you right to relationship. So now, having confessed God as Father, you start talking about the relationship He has with you and you have with Him. I know that some of you grew up without a dad. And maybe some of you grew up with an abusive dad. When I taught in the women's prison for six years and I got to the fatherhood of God, I always spent time talking about how God is the prototype for father. Not all fathers follow the fatherhood of God, but he is the perfect father who loves us passionately. And I would always talk about that because for some, the idea of father needs rehabilitated. And I suggest to you that you rehabilitate the idea of father from the fatherhood of God. If you didn't have a great father or a father at all, it will change the way you think of yourself to see now that God is your father and you are his beloved child. You need to get there. It's truth, but it's also empowering and liberating and transforming to believe it, to confess it, to see yourself as the Father's child. It will change how you think about the world of which you are a part. I had a great dad. My earliest memory of my dad is when I was three or four, five years old, and I woke up while he was carrying me to bed. Apparently, I had fallen asleep in the living room. My father had scooped me up in his arms, these two arms. I was laying like this. And he was carrying th me through a narrow hallway in the parsonage of the church in El Paso. And I woke up just as we got to the hot water heater, which sat there without an enclosure in the middle of the hallway. I remember it, okay? And my memory's about two seconds long because right after that, I must have fallen asleep completely and Dad put me in the bed already asleep. But I woke up in my father's arms as a boy and for just those seconds, I realized where I was. And all my life, I have remembered that moment and have cherished it because my father had me in his arms. I wish I could get it to you that the Father's got you in his arms. Some of you are so frightened, so anxious, 
so uncertain about what you ought to do and what the future holds. And if you could just see yourself for a moment in the Father's arms, in the loving arms of the Father who made you and cares for you and loves you, if you could confess, I believe in God, the Father, my Father, what a change it would bring. There'd be peace. There'd be confidence. It would push your shoulders back. It'd put your chin up. You would walk boldly and bravely in the world knowing that God is your Father. You ought to start there. Understanding God, start with Father. It pushes you to relationship and to the love He has for you. Before you get to all the technical aspects of God, this relational picture is so powerful and it is so true this is the truth about God he is the father now I like the traditional English version because it has almighty and some of the versions of the creed have father almighty connected together and separated by commas but the two words together and that term father almighty is not in the scripture I like it better if, better if Almighty is separated by the commas, okay? Somebody said, you're actually looking at the commas in these creeds. <laughs> I said, yeah, I'm looking at how they're constructed. And I like Almighty being broke out. Because in some ways, Almighty stands in contrast to Father. See, if you can approach God as Father, which if you grew up in a household of faith and you were taught the Scriptures, you probably experienced that. You experienced the love of God, the relationship with God, before you ever got into all the omnipotence and omnipresent and omniscient. You knew that God was your Father. That's fundamental. It's the foundation on which you stand in your understanding of God. But God is also Almighty. He is God Almighty. As he said to Abram in Genesis 17, I am God Almighty. I am El Shaddai. And that term is used throughout the Old Testament, and sometimes it's just the word Almighty. What has the Almighty said? In fact, the solitary term Almighty is used most frequently to designate God in the book of Job. I believe Job understood that God cared for him. He was in the providence of God. He worshiped God. He had a special relationship with God. But when the trouble came, he started to try to unpack the essential qualities of God and how they could harmonize, given his suffering, his tragedy, the catastrophe that visited his life and his family. And it is on this matter of being almighty that often we question the character of God. If God is such a good father to me and he is almighty, then why am I afflicted with this disease? Why has sorrow come into my life? Why has God allowed me to walk this particular path if he is the father? And he is almighty. And sometimes it seems to us that when we get in trouble, 
While the fatherhood of God comforts us, the truth that he is the all-powerful one may disturb us. If you had all this power, God, why are you standing by as I hurt? The truth is, God's never been standing by although it sometimes feels that way when you call out to him in prayer and it seems you get no answer. Sometimes you're thinking, well, God, where are you? And sometimes the opposite is true. You go along your happy way with everything going like it ought to go in your life and you really don't think about God. And then the trouble comes and it hits you hard and that's the place where you meet God. But God demonstrated once and for all that he is not aloof to our pain and suffering in that he sent his son to die on a cross and we're going to confess in this creed he suffered he suffered and in his suffering he was perfected and completed to be our high priest our mediator between us and God the Father because he suffered and endured all the things that we endure. David knew that God was with him. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Thou art with me. David knew this. He knew the fatherhood of God, that God was with him in his trouble. I want you to get hold of that, okay? If the trouble has come and it has rocked your faith and you're wondering, can I still say, I believe in God the Father? I want you to go ahead and just let the Holy Spirit fan that flame in you because your faith is still there. This is no time to abandon your faith when troubles come. It's no time to turn your back on God, to stop your prayer life, to stop going to the house of worship. Having gotten into trouble, now's the time to fan the flame and say, Lord, I got this little faith. I believe. Help my unbelief. Your faith in God stabilizes everything about your, your life. Not only your mind, not only your soul, but your relationships. All the connections of your life are stabilized in the confession, I believe in God the Father Almighty. So don't leave there. Stand right there. Even though it's shaken you, fan the flame. I started my fire in the fireplace this morning. And when the fire got low and I realized it needed some air, I closed off the big doors because then the air pulls from underneath and it goes right through the coals and it lights up that fire. Some of you need to close the doors and get real focused on the God who loves you, who made you, who cares for you, and who is your Father. And fan that flame of faith in you that may have gotten low, but is not out. I believe in God, the Father Almighty. See, you cannot turn loose of the almightiness of God, even though it might seem in contrast to your current situation. Because if God is not the almighty one, then we don't know how it's going to turn out. There's no certainty that God's going to win. There was a dualism in the ancient world that said there is good and there is evil and they fight each other all the time eternally and who knows who's going to triumph. But the confession does not say that. 
The confession says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. He is the creator of heaven and earth, and this is essential to our comfort, our security, and our peace in the present hour. Because the outcome is not in question. God who began the world with his creative word, who spoke into the nothingness and said, let there be light, and there was light. This God who made the earth and the stars and everything in them is bringing his world to its proper conclusion in his Son. All things are fulfilled in the Son. They are completed in the Son. So history's not going in circles. It's going in a line from the moment when God said, let there be light, to the moment that he says, it's time to wrap it up. When we confess God as creator, we are saying that God is the unmoved mover that he is the first cause. Just as Thomas Aquinas taught us in his theology, just as the Tulane physics professor said after years of study and being an atheist, he finally said, you know, you can't get something from nothing. You can't get something from nothing. You just can't do it. There had to be something there before the beginning. There had to be. And he's now a Christian. He's written a book about it. He says his physics study brought him to the, the basic, which is, I believe in God, maker of heaven and earth. You are his creation. I am his creation. He made it all by faith. Faith is not against reason although it may be beyond reason. By faith, we understand. There's no understanding how there could be something because nothing that we see now visually is eternal. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God so that things which are seen were not made by things which do appear. There was a creative process when God spoke the worlds into existence that you cannot now see. But God said, let there be light. And the creation began with the word of God who is the eternal one. He has no beginning of days nor end of life. The children ask, where did God come from? I can't plumb that mystery for you. All I can say is what the creed confesses and what the scriptures teach. God has always been. He is the one who has always been. And so, you can't get behind or over or around the presence and existence of God. You confess it. It's how you understand that the world came about. 
You can't get something out of nothing. So what was there before the beginning? God was. Now, this confession ought to delight every human being on the face of the earth in every generation for every lost soul for every person who thought I have no reason to be here why am I here I am just an accident I'm an unplanned eventuality from my parents that's all I am that's the explanation of my existence for all those who despaired about why they're here and why they're breathing everybody when you hear I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. There's something in you that ought to quicken your pulse and say, yes, yes, I want to believe that. I want to believe it. Because if I believe it, if I embrace it, then who I am and why I am makes sense to me. By faith, I understand. I understand. And something in the human spirit draws us to God. There's something about us, the way we are made, that longs to be in dialogue, in communion and in fellowship with God. And sometimes we fight off that impulse and we bury it and we go our separate ways. And oftentimes our, our problem with God is the morality issue, not the intellectual issue. For the Father in heaven establishes parameters and expectations. And as humans, we want to defy them. So much of our no God is really driven by I want what I want. And I don't want anybody, not even God, telling me what I can do. When we confess, I believe in God the Father, Almighty, maker in heaven, of heaven and earth, we are making the confession that puts a foundation beneath our feet, that puts us on a purposeful path, that fills our world with the love, joy, and peace we long to hold, that, yes, gives us parameters in our day-to-day -day living, and that gives us a hope for now and all the future. Bow with me, please. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, there may be someone in this room who has put off giving your personal answer to God. But the Holy Spirit is saying to you, it's time. You feel the call to make your confession. Why not confess to God right now? Lord, here I am. I know I've run the other way. I've waited for a long time. I've wanted to do this. And so, God, I say to you, I have sinned. Forgive me for my sin. I believe in you. I believe in your son, Jesus. I receive him as Lord and Savior. Would you request that the God who loves you and made you as his own would come into your life and change you? 
be for you the father that you've always wanted him to be. Thank you, God, that you are present now with us. Draw us to yourself, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.